Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, I've confessed this to you already, but now I must share my confession with the world. I'm a murderer. <laughs> a double murderer, even. Actually, look, in all honesty... It's actually really upsetting to me. It's been really horrible for me. Uh, and as I think about it, it's a terrible way to start the podcast. But, okay, so here we go. As you know, and as I've mentioned before in the podcast, I live on a half acre of very nice property in rural Vermont. Lovely spot. Um, you know, and as you also very much know, animal welfare and wildlife, the environment, all really, really important to me. So, right. you know, I let a bunch of the property grow wild. I've got rabbits, I've got skunks, woodchucks, chipmunks, occasional opossum. Fortunately, the even more occasional bear, um, all kinds of bird life. It's great, but I do mow some of it, right, for aesthetic reasons and also because, well, other stuff I've got, like a septic field, and you're supposed to keep that mowed and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, and I have a hippie battery-powered mower that takes about six recharges to get around the property. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm out there mowing the other day, and all's going well, and then I just suddenly, oh, and I'm even shivering as i tell you this i i hear this clunk oh god help me and i look down and i oh god i've run over a rabbit's nest um and i've like taken out one poor baby rabbit with my mower and another one i've hit and it's thrashing around and it's last throes of life and it might not sound like much to a lot of people but like I haven't eaten meat since 1985. I I freaking love animals. I was so upset. Yeah. I'm still even upset thinking about it. And I I think to myself I have to finish this little guy off. But I I don't want to do it. And so a poor neighbor who raises chickens and is used to dealing with dead stuff and is a farmer boy. I go running to him and I go God, can you help me kill this rabbit? We get back to my property. There's Mama Rabbit doing it for us. <laughs> Apparently, oh. I had no idea. Mama bunnies eat their dead and dying young. So it just got better and better <laughs> and better. And I'm just standing there being pathetic. And my neighbor's like looking at my mower and goes, oh, man, you even have one of those like hippie electric mowers so you don't harm the environment. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> anyway, it all really, really upset me. So apparently I'm completely content and happy to watch human beings beat the living piss out of each other. Right. But injure or kill a baby rabbit, and I'm just a mess for days. So, Jeez. how about you? You kill anything recently? <laughs> uh, well, y- you know, Jack. Uh, is it okay if I call you Jack, since since you're the closest <laughs> thing I've ever met to Jack the Ripper? Um, uh, you know, it sounds horrifying. I'm happy to say I can't quite relate, um, although I move into my new house this week, and uh, unlike where I live now, I will have a lawn to mow, so, so now I know what the absolute worst case scenario is. Uh, actually, um, now that I think about it, maybe this isn't quite worst case. Uh, Bill Detloff, a couple of years ago, whacked off the top half inch or so of one of his fingers with a lawnmower. Something about being my podcast partner that leads to lawnmower horror stories, I guess. And um, Bill's actually the only other person I know who'd be that upset to, yes. to kill a rabbit. Right. the same as I am. Right. He'd probably rather lose a nub of a finger than kill a rabbit. Uh, but I think the closest I can come to relating is being guilty of committing roadkill. Um, I've, oh, I've had two of, of those of note. Uh, one, when I was much younger, uh, I, I hit a possum in the wee hours of the morning. And then the worst one, not that long ago a beaver darted out on the highway and I tried to slow down, but it was too late. And 
I made the horrible mistake of looking in the rearview mirror and oh, the yeah, twitching. The My mirror. God, the twitching. Oh, God, that's the worst thing. I can still picture that poor bunny. It is the twitching. It's the worst yeah. thing. Oh, I, my God. I, and and I, I don't know what happened after, whether the mama beaver was nearby to come uh, put it out of its misery. Oh, no. I'm not sure. Oh, God. <laughs> Hopefully somebody did. This is the most horrible start to a podcast we've <laughs> yes. ever can, had. I can't believe you've just done it. There's <laughs> no way anyone's still listening to this. Can we Can we get to proper violence, please? Shall we? Yes. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, dear. And we do actually have a, a jam-packed edition of the podcast. There's lots of violence coming yes. up. Um, we will be previewing next Saturday's big pay-per-view, headlined by Javante Davis versus Mario Barrios. Uh, we will be coming through a busy week of news. Eric will give us his top five list of fights that make the defense case for our Gary being in the Hall of Fame. Our new segment, The Money Punch, returns. But we begin with a busy Saturday night in boxing, starting in Houston, where on Showtime Championship Boxing, Jamal Charlo dominated Juan Montiel, winning virtually every round en route to a unanimous 12-round decision to retain a middleweight strap. But my question to you, Eric, is... Was it enough? We asked last week whether Charlo needed an impressive win. Was this it? Um, given that Montiel was... How can I put this? Not especially good. Mm. And given that Jaime Munguia flattened him in two rounds a, a few years ago, should Charlo be a little disappointed or even a lot disappointed that he didn't get him out of there? And what, if anything, does it mean for his hopes of success at 168 pounds if he decides to go up and take on bigger boys? This was a really interesting fight in that if you told me going in that it goes the distance and Charlo doesn't even knock Montiel down, I would have said wow, that's a terrible result. Charlo must have really <laughs> underperformed. But seeing it play out, I mean, no, Montiel was not really any better than we thought he was. Um, but he's awkward. And and yeah. more, more importantly, he was tough as hell and yeah. determined as hell. And sometimes a fighter just has that mindset of, I'm not getting knocked out. I'm taking whatever he gives me. And he clearly didn't have that mindset against Munguia, where he said he barely trained. And I believe that. He, he mailed that one in. Uh, this was make or break for him in his career. Yeah. He needed a better performance here. So with that perspective, Charlo did I. Uh, not great. You know, th this fight is not going to be an argument in his favor when it comes time to decide if he's a Hall of Famer. But he mostly dominated. He took some return fire and walked through it. And hey... You know, you can't knock everybody out. Yeah. Um, so I would say if I'm disappointed in how he fought, it's a very mild disappointment. Yeah. I personally scored two rounds for Montiel, but they might have been sympathy rounds. Um, I, I, I can't argue too hard against a shutout if that's how somebody had it. Um, as for what this fight means going forward and whether Charlo can do well at 168, first of all, he, he says that he's staying at 160. Um, I'm sure he'd make an exception if Canelo called his sure. name. Uh, but let's take him as worthy staying at 160 for now. He might be the best at the weight at the moment. It's hard to say. I think it's between him, Golovkin, and Andrade. Um, I'm just not sure what the big fight is for him that's easy to yeah. make at 160. Um, we'll talk about Jaime Munguia in a bit. That's probably the fight I want if I'm Charlo, but Munguia might have some better options. So he's in a weird place. Uh, unless he's willing to move up in weight or take a little less money than he thinks he's worth or make a fight that's politically challenging to make, I'm not quite sure what's next for him. Um, I guess, you know, coming back to this fight, he did fine. He won by a lot. 
but he didn't do anything to increase his market value really and help him with whatever the next fight's going to be. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I have to admit, my attitude toward Montiel changed over the course of the fight. Like, at first, he just annoyed the hell out of me. It's, <laughs> right. it's one thing not being very good. It's another raising your hands in victory at the end of the round, in which you appear to throw about six punches. <laughs> right. um, uh, I, at that point, I really wanted Charlo to get him out of there, partly because Montiel was annoying me, partly because it was by then 11.30 at night. <laughs> right. We all know how washed we both are. <laughs> and then in the sixth round, when Charlo was beating the snot out of Montiel, I really wanted a stoppage because I picked KO6 in our picks competition but uh but i did gain a growing admiration for montiel uh grudging at times as, as time went on the way he hung in there and the way he even fought back at the end to mark charlo up just a wee bit mm-hmm. um yeah montiel isn't good his stance was awful i mean just terrible his legs are stiff he squares up gets no real leverage but that said like you said he was clearly in shape clearly came with a determination not to go down or be out and I'm not too sure what else Charlo could have done there. He, he, he picked his punches well. He landed well at a high percentage. And he threw more punches than he normally does. I, I just don't know that there's anything very obvious that he could have done to get him out of there. Um, you know, and it would, before we're too hard on him, let's remember that he is coming off a career best performance against Derevianchenko. That was a terrific performance. So, yeah. again, it's, it's very important to not do the 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 boxing analysis thing of swinging one way, you know, or the other to, oh my God, he's fantastic to, oh my God, I always knew he was overrated. Um, I think it was just one of those nights. And after the, you know, we, we were particularly interested in, did he have to put on a good performance for his Houston crowd? At first they were very unhappy because Montiel was just being weird in there for the first few rounds. But once it actually got going, I think they ended up being pretty entertained and they were yeah. entertained with what he did. It won't be on his highlight reel. He he won't talk about it very much in the future. Sometimes you've got to get the W. He got the W, and I don't honestly know that there was much more he could have done, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, um, agreed. All right. In the co-main event, uh, Isak Cruz outpointed veteran Francisco Vargas in a fight that, surprise, surprise, ended <laughs> with Vargas suffering a horrendous cut above his right eye from an accidental headbutt about 40 seconds from the end of the fight. That clash of heads... Certainly seemed to be an accident, uh, but there were definitely times when Cruz was moving his head into Vargas's when the two were at close quarters. Two questions for you, Kieran. Should Cruz have been docked a point or points? Um, and should the fight have been stopped when that cut opened up on Vargas's eye? Uh, so to take the first one, you could certainly make the case that he could have been docked a point, or at least given, I think, perhaps more severe warnings. The referee, you know, on, on a couple of occasions definitely did the, you know, tap in the forehead and saying, watch the heads kind of thing. Um, but he was pulling that veteran move in there, and he was sort of like moving his head onto the left side of Vargas's head when the referee was on the other side of Vargas, mm-hmm. stuff like that. That could be very hard to spot in the moment, especially when it's a rough, tough fight, when heads are going to come together anyway. Um, I do think it's illustrative that while Al Bernstein was, and I think rightly, unhappy with what Cruz was doing. Abnamares was kind of chuckling at it. Um, Fighters know what goes on in there. Um, And as Ricky Hatton always used to say, it's not a tickling contest. It's it's rough and tough and dirty and bloody. Cruz was, you know, being untoward in there at times with his head. But actually him doing that um, didn't seem to have much impact. It was that clash of heads afterwards that really, at the, or at the very end, that really right. made the difference. And yes, that fight should have been stopped. <laughs> that was a horrible cut. Um, if it stopped there, it goes to the cards. 
Vargas doesn't get a TKO loss. He gets a decision loss, which is what he got anyway. You could make a case for it continuing if it was a close fight and slash or Vargas was a one-punch KO artist or he had Cruz in trouble. But none of those things was the case. Nine and two and a half minutes of the final round had gone. Um, You know who was going to win. Vargas wasn't going to pull it out of the bag. You know that he's got a tendency to cut anyway. That was a horrible cut. That wasn't a cut. That was a Grand Canyon. It was my, <laughs> there was just no point. And you could tell that the referee and the doctor were having the discussion, like, only 30 seconds to go. Oh, he might as well let it go. It's not long enough for Vargas to win. It's perfectly long enough for that cut to be even worse, imperiling you know, what else might remain in Vargas's career. Um, I, I thought it was pointless to allow it to continue. I, I thought it ran the risk of injuring Vargas even more personally. Yeah, I, I got a pile on with the the ref James Green there and uh, that that conversation with the doctor. I get Green's instinct initially. Mm-hmm. You know, it's thirty seconds from the end. Maybe Agreed. we can let them finish it out. But once you get a good look at that cut, the doctor oh is God. there basically saying this is horrific. It shouldn't go on. He can't fight with this. And the ref is pushing and pushing and trying to overrule him until he re- relents. I wish the doctor hadn't relented, um, but. Uh, more of the blame goes on the ref. I, I think he just made a wrong assessment here. And maybe he thought he was doing a Vargas a favor because yeah. Vargas clearly needed a knockout to win. So he's giving him one last crack at that. But instead, he just got a guy who was in no condition to keep fighting knocked down. Uh, and yeah, yeah this, was, this was poorly handled. I'm with you. It should have been a technical decision win for Cruz. Totally irrelevant to, to force the extra 30 seconds and have it go into the books as a regular decision win. Yeah, I think even by Vargas standards, that was a bad cut. So all all that money on plastic surgery. And he came so close to getting through 10 rounds without a bad cut. He had like a little cut from earlier, but... uh. Oh my God, that was horrendous. Uh, In the opener, Angelo Leo scored a majority decision win over Aaron Alameda in a fight that's maybe a little bit more restrained than we're used to with Leo. I I thought it was quite a tough fight to score. I thought a lot of the rounds were very close. Uh, I predicted a 96-94 win for Leo. I had a 96-94 win for Leo, but... Like I said, a lot of the rounds were very close. Uh, how did you score it? Do you think that Leo's relatively composed performance was a result of his sort of applying lessons he learned in his loss to Stephen Fulton? Or was it more due to the fact that Alameda is actually a very good fighter and a very difficult opponent? So you, you say Leo's relatively composed performance. I feel like maybe you have a slightly different perception of him than I do just in terms of I think you perceive him as a little more of a straight ahead pressure fighter than mm. what I see him as a breadman kind of objected to to that last week and yeah, yeah I, I see Leo as having a few layers to his game to me this wasn't all that different a Leo from what we've seen in previous fights um first of all I, I thought he won slightly wider than you did I had it 97 93 but uh I thought all the scores were totally reasonable from 98, 92, all the way to 95, 95. I think that encompasses the full range of fine scores in a fight with, as you said, a bunch of really close rounds. But um, yeah, Leo is a a solid boxer. I was a bit surprised that he seemed to have the edge at distance, um, Mm -hmm. landing his straight right hands, and that Alameda maybe had a slight edge in close. That that sort of surprised me. Um, So back to your question just about you know, whether it was due to Alameda's ability and style. Um, Alameda's a solid fighter, a southpaw, a bit difficult. So I think Leo was probably correct not to go all out. He had to remain defensively responsible as he went about his business. Um, 
If anything, I was a little disappointed in Alameda down the Mm. stretch. Um, There wasn't a sense of urgency from him at all in the final round when I thought it was clear he needed the round, needed to try to make a push to have any kind of a claim to a win or even a draw. Um, But he just sort of kept doing the same thing of not quite doing enough and getting out hustled. I thought really this was about an even fight that Leo won with hustle and and activity. Um, the, The other thing worth saying here is that this was an entertaining fight. Um, yes. Well-paced, well-fought, almost exactly evenly matched. I could watch Leo and Alameda fight each other every other week, even if that might not be the best plan for them from a health perspective. <laughs> exactly. I will say that one, one of the things that I really loved about Leo, uh, he did some wonderful pivoting in close mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, uh, to, to sort of do the counter with, with what I was saying about him being a bit more of a straight-ahead fighter, he certainly showed at times there that he is so much more. Some of his footwork as he moved around in close um, to get different angles uh, was very impressive. Yeah. All right. So the result of all of that, we each scored four points in our picks contest. Uh, we got two points for picking a Leo decision win over Alameda, though we both thought it would be unanimous rather than majority. And we got one each uh, for each of the other two fights as we picked the right winners, but predicted KOs in both fights. That leaves me with the slimmest of leads, 36-35, heading into next week's pay-per-view. And, of course, we will make our picks for that pay-per-view later on in the podcast. We will. But first, uh, we have to discuss a couple of other fight cards of note uh, from Saturday night. Uh, Let's start with the somewhat farcical. Uh, In Mexico, 46-year-old former UFC champ Anderson Spider Silva outpointed Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. via split decision over eight rounds and was so comfortable he was actually taunting Chavez at times. Unsurprisingly, Chavez also missed weight, although he incredibly tried to deny that he had. Uh, Two questions. Are we now finally done with Chavez? Is is this that final embarrassment losing to a non-boxer that convinces him to walk away? And is Anderson Silva now in the mix for a fight with one of the Paul brothers? (laughs) How are we still not already done with Chavez? Um... Right. (laughs) It's clear he cares like not a bit for the no. sport or for his fans or for his opponents or even for himself as a boxer. I mean, I guess on one level, I can still find it in myself to feel a little bit of pity for him and that he clearly doesn't want to be a boxer, but he probably feels that he has no choice because of his name. Um, but honestly, somewhat ironically, his lack of effort and professionalism is so profound. You feel like he has to put a lot of effort into it. Um, but anyway... Uh, no, well, I think we're not done with Chavez, even though we should be. Um, <laughs> as for the other question, you know what? Uh, by the way, either of the Paul brothers could face Chavez next in Mexico and be the baby faces of the promotion, <laughs> I think, at this point. Um, as for Silva and the Pauls, so on one level, he absolutely fits the profile. Faded, yeah. aging, ex-UFC legend in a boxing ring. But he's now a faded, aging, ex-UFC legend who has a win under his belt. So theoretically, <laughs> that probably rules him out. Right. But you do have to wonder, right? And I wouldn't be at all surprised if wheels are turning on both sides and there's sort of contact between the camps about the possibilities. Yeah, where this this whole thing has a ways to run yet, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's talk some real fights, shall we? Yes. Uh, over on DAZN on a mercifully early afternoon card from El Paso, Texas. This whole DAZN going global and not wanting to keep their UK viewers up too late thing is fantastic. Love it. I love yep. it. Uh, absolutely. Um, both the main event and co-feature we're talking about here, uh, both ended in knockouts. One more or less what everyone expected. The other very much not. Uh, the main event 
went according to script as the aforementioned Jaime Munguia remained undefeated, moving to 37-0 overall and 3-0 with 3 KO since moving up to middleweight as he stopped a late substitute Camille Zerometa. Uh, we noted before the fight, his goal might be to stop Zerometa in fewer rounds than Gennady Golovkin did, and he just about achieved that as it took Golovkin seven rounds, and Munguia dominated en route to a stoppage at the end of round six. In the co-feature, Gabe Rosado scored a contender for both upset of the year and knockout of the year, getting off the canvas in round one to shock Bektomir Bekbuli Malakusiev with a counter right hand in round three. We keep thinking Rosado is nearing the end of the road, and he keeps proving us wrong. And afterward, he called that Mungia. So, were you impressed by Mungia? How did Gabe Rosado pull this off? And does Mungia Rosado actually make sense to you next? The first question, was I impressed by Munguia? Yeah, uh, this is a couple in a row where he's looked pretty good. The struggle against Dennis Hogan, that now sort of stands out as his low point. Took a few fights to shake the stink of that for me. Right. Uh, but now he has. He's looked good at middleweight, not against elite opposition, but against serviceable opposition. And so I'm thinking the higher weight is better for him. And it seems like he's getting slightly more polished um, he's back to being a guy I'm feeling positive about rather than somewhere where someone where I'm expecting that his first loss is only a matter of time, which was kind of the mode I've been in the past two years or so. Mm. As for Rosado, it's pretty simple how he pulled it off. Beck was stepping in with those left yeah. hands the exact same way over and over. There was no variation to his angle or approach and combine that with him appearing overconfident. And he really opened the door for a good veteran fighter to time him perfectly. Yeah. Beck goes back to the drawing board, hopefully learns from this. But Rosado, you can't say enough about how he's revived his career and how good this win was. Uh, I mean, he goes down in the first round. He's taking clean shots. Mm -hmm. But he hangs in there and pulls this off as about a 10 to 1 underdog. Uh, fun to see our old friend B-Hop getting fired up at ringside yeah. <laughs> after the KO punch landed as Gabe Rosado continues the Philly boxing renaissance. Uh, so, Mungir Rosado? Yeah, I mean, Rosado would have to come back down from 168 to 160, but I presume he can. That's a very fun fight on paper. It makes all the sense in the world for Rosado because it's a big fight that he'd have a chance of winning. And for Mungia, beating Rosado, which would have meant very little a year ago, yeah. now means something again. Um, there are two big money fights that Mungia wants against Canelo and Triple G, but they both seem to have the rest of their 2021s mapped out and Mungia isn't part of their plans. So... For a good, solid, fun fall fight? Absolutely. Munguia Rosado, sign me up. Um, finally, on ESPN, Noya the Monster Inouye lived up to his nickname once more, dropping Michael Hot and Spicy Das Marinas <laughs> three times with body shots before stopping him in the third. On a card that also saw wins for Michaela Mayer via clear-cut decision over Erica Farias and Isaac Dogbay via much more controversial decision over Adam Lopez. Kieran, anything to comment on there? Uh, not a great deal. Um, I wasn't able to really, you know, score the Lopez Dog Bay fight in any great detail, but sort of looking at it, it sort of felt to me that Lopez deserved the nod there. Uh, Dog Bay did the early work, but Lopez was really getting to him down the stretch. I thought he did enough from what I could see. Um, as for, uh, in a way, look, that's how you take care of an overmatched opponent. Um, I don't think Desmarinus really belonged in the ring with Inouye, but not very many people do. And, you know, Monster wanted a, you know, a sort of a comeback soft touch, uh, and he got it. Um, 
credit I will give to Desmarinas for getting up from those body shot knockdowns, or at least the first two. That's really hard to get yeah. up from those kind of punches. Uh, and he did. But, you know, he's incredible to watch. He's so... He's like so economical and relaxed with his punches. He doesn't appear to be torquing them at all, does he? But he just delivers them with such speed and precision. Uh, he's absolutely a phenomenal fighter. And of course, every time he does something like this, Nonito Donaire just looks better and better and better, doesn't he? <laughs> Indeed, yep. Uh, and that card actually leads us into the tweet of the week, which comes from the aforementioned Michaela Mayer. Um, anyone who's been around fighters during fight week, knows that the very time when a boxer would most like to be relaxing and focusing and not dealing with people is the time where they're least able to. So for one thing, during fight week, fighters, a lot of fighters tend to be pretty hangry as they try to squeeze out those last few pounds. Plus, they've got media responsibilities. And often that's when the long lost friends come out of the woodwork, especially if there are tickets to be had. So it's easy to sympathize, in my opinion, with Mayer for tweeting, quote, if you don't truly need something, don't call me on fight week like duh. And deaf do not text me, you ready? SMH, stop. <laughs> of course, Twitter being Twitter, the responses included several smart asses asking, you ready? <laughs> and a few people who chastised Mayor for being ungrateful and some who asked how it was that she had time to post a tweet but not answer texts from people who cared about her. All of which I thought spectacularly missed the point. Yeah, yeah, I caught this tweet as well. Uh, good pick here. And I, I just found it very relatable. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a person who, unless I'm specifically hoping to hear something from somebody in particular... I get annoyed every time my phone buzzes. Um, I, I have the notifications turned off on almost every group text chain I've ever been added to. I'll see them when I see them. I just don't want to be bothered or distracted. And that's not during fight week or whatever my right. version of fight week would be. That's just my regular mode. So, yeah, this tweet from Michaela Mayer. People should know better than to bother people at key times unless you're part of their inner, inner circle. Exactly. Like, I'm thinking of if my wife goes into labor... We're at the hospital. Unless you're one of our parents, don't text me to ask if the baby arrived yet. We're right. busy. We can't be fielding questions from 20 different people. You'll get the news when you get the news. <laughs> uh, Michaela's mayor situation isn't exactly like that, but there's there's a similar vibe, and I, I found her attitude very relatable. And I get that some people aren't like me at all. They like to have 50 different text threads going. They live for that stuff. They're sociable and addicted to their devices or whatever. I'm more like this. Every call or text that comes in when I'm busy is a nuisance. I, I might have a disorder. I don't know. But but that's how I feel. And uh, I, I guess Michaela and I are simpatico on this one. Uh, that said, whoever was first in her Twitter mentions to respond, you ready? Uh, well, well played to whoever did it first. Right. The following 10, 11, 12. <laughs> right. Once someone, you have to check the replies and see yes. if the joke has been made. Yes. This is the thing more than anything else that I hate about Twitter. It's apparently removed people's ability to actually like read or right. check because <laughs> it just must respond now. It's, yeah. Have you noticed this new thing that Twitter does that if you try to quote retweet something with that's a link to an article, it sort of asks yes. and you haven't clicked on the article. It yeah. asks if you want to click on it first. Yes. Yeah, it's, yes. it's trying to uh, curb that instinct that people have. I'm sure that it's ineffective, though. Uh, yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine that it's causing anyone to think twice. You know what, Twitter, you've got a good point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This Saturday, boxing returns to Showtime pay-per-view in the form of a four-fight card from the State Farm Arena in Atlanta. 
headlined by a 140-pound title fight between Mario Barrios and Javante Tank Davis. Davis is 24-0 with 23 KOs and coming off a spectacular KO of Leo Santa Cruz in October. Um, Barrios is 26-0 with 17 KOs. He's a very highly uh, rated uh, contender slash titleist. Eric, look, both men are unbeaten. Davis is the closer by far of the two to being an established star. Um, You could say he already is. But Barrios has taken on a smaller man with more experience at the highest levels of the sport. Who's got more at stake here? Who can least afford the L? That's a really good question. Um, Usually there's more pressure on the bigger guy, like uh, Oscar De La Hoya, Shane Mosley won. Mosley almost had nothing to lose in there. He was coming up two weight classes, and he was the betting underdog. That isn't the case here. The bigger guy, Barrios, is the underdog. Uh, We'll get into this more in the Money Punch segment, but you can get about three to one on your money betting Barrios. It's rare that there isn't more pressure on the favorite in a situation like that. But, you know, if Gervonta does lose this fight, he can go back to 135 Mm. and 130 and say, oh, well, I'm not really a 140-pounder, he wasn't better than me, he was just bigger than me, and convince himself and maybe convince his fans to write it off, not hold the loss against him. I mean, Davis's highest weight to this point in his career was 135.5. Barrios has been between 139 and 143 his last nine fights, though he did turn pro at 122, so he might not be that much bigger naturally than Tank, but I'm just saying that in theory there is a built-in excuse if Davis loses. That said... I think Davis is still the one with more at stake here, more to lose, because he's the guy on the fringes of pound-for-pound top tens. He's the guy being sold as one of boxing's possible next big things, a pay-per-view A-side, and much of that goes away if he loses to Barrios. You know, losing your O shouldn't be the end of the world, Mm -hmm. but if you're trying to be among the sport's absolute elite and you lose your O to someone who is not among the sport's absolute elite, it does set you back. Barrios, meanwhile, has a lot to gain with a win. Um, that that pushes him to another level. Um, and I, I guess I should be clear. You know, they're both only 26 years old. Neither guy should be written off with a loss. But yeah, ultimately, Tank is the A side. He's the guy who might be one of the four princes, trademark Karen Mulvaney. He, <laughs> he has to win this fight if he's going to keep that sort of talk going. Yeah, uh, and you touched on this already, and of course, one of the big storylines, perhaps the big storyline going on, is the size difference, and specifically the height difference. So Barrios is listed at being five ten, whereas Davis is just five five and a half, which which is shortish even for like a junior lightweight. Mm-hmm. Um, we asked last week's guest, uh, top trainer Stephen Breadman Edwards, about that. He gave us this really excellent analysis. I think that uh, Davis is. Um... You know, he's probably going to be the favorite in the fight. He's a little bit more naturally talented, but he is short. And uh, but but he's been short his whole career. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when the guy is short, right, he's so used to being a shorter guy that he knows how to sort of um, overcome that and and sort of like you know contort his body in different ways where he can um, overcome some of the things that he has to as far as being a shorter guy in the ring. So I don't really think, you know, it's as big a deal as people, like, make it out to be. Like, oh, my God, he's giving up. I think in this he's giving up about seven inches. But, you know, he's been one his whole career. So it's not, you know, it's 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 not that big of a deal. And walks around really, really big, you know. So now he gets to not burn calories and not cut into his muscle 
And, you know, I mean, he looks to be a guy that was getting up to 170-something pounds, making 130. So now he'll be sharper and more relaxed, and, you know, he, his body won't be so stressed out. So um, even though I think that Burials has some advantages, you still got to look at it. All of these guys are fighting really, really – they're coming down really too far than what any doctor would recommend right. you come down and take a punch. Right. <laughs> you know, like nobody can say that, but you don't ever recommend an athlete lose 35 pounds and take a punch to the head. You know what I mean? It's, it's counterproductive in any, you know, any phys, uh, professional in sports science will tell you that that's not, you know, what boxers are doing are counterproductive. In football, you gain weight and you put muscle mass on yeah. to take punishment to your body. Boxing is the only sport where you lose weight to do it. So um, from that aspect, I do think that the weight, you know, will be a factor. And this is the first time that uh, Davis is fighting the guy, you know, puncher you know Gamboa can punch but he's a little bit older so I think that Mario can punch and he's a young guy in his prime like Davis so I do think that that will be a factor I think it's going to be a great fight though Mario's tall but he doesn't have the longest arms in the world and height and length are a little different if you look at him he doesn't have like a, a huge reach uh, I think it's like 71 inches which is about 5'11 but Mario's really about 6'1 I've been around him Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's, a, uh, you know, that'll be interesting. But Davis understands how to fight tall guys. A lot of times guys reach down and hit him in the body or hit him in certain places, and he knows how to shoot shots over the top. So this is a great fight. You know, I'm more excited for this fight than a lot of people. A lot of people think that Davis is going to um, smoke him, but I think this is a very competitive fight. And if Mario does not get caught with something big early, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, upset Davis. I think he has to uh, be really careful, though, early with reaching down below and Davis bringing something over the top and clipping him. Mm-hmm. I think that's his big dilemma in this fight. Yeah, it's interesting uh, just the, the, with the height difference and you sort of think of that the, it plays to the taller guy's advantage. He can keep him on the outside and all that. But I, I'm remembering Lennox Lewis used to talk about how he kind of he sometimes hated fighting much shorter guys because you, you couldn't. It wasn't hard to get their chin. You were hitting the top of their head. It's just a different angle that you're going to. So uh, even the tall, a tall guy like Barrios, there are certain stylistic things that fighting a shorter guy like Gervonta uh, pre- present challenges to him that he's not used to. You know what? I'm going to tell you guys, I probably shouldn't be saying this out loud, but I'll say it anyway. (laughs) Neither one of them are my fighters. Guys worry about fighting tall, but the thing you should worry about is fighting long. Mm -hmm. Being longer and being taller is different. Guys stand up high when they're tall, right? And if you don't have the proper movement or you don't have the proper reaction time, then what you are is a big target for a sharpshooter like Devontae Davis. But if you get down in your legs and you spread your legs a little bit and your arms are long and you extend your arms, you would rather be long than you would be tall. So you have fighters like Eric Sandy Lauder who aren't tall, but he has the reach of a person that's like 6'3". I think his reach is like 75 inches. So he's long. He can touch you from farther away. So you would rather be longer than taller. Hmm. So Mario has to understand that he can't be standing straight up in the air because he'll be a big target. And that kid will hit him in his chin and the fight will be over with. He has to get down in his legs and make himself long so Tank will have to reach for punches and fall off balance. That makes sense to you guys? Yeah. yeah people 100%. repeat this all the time. Like, um, 
got to fight tall. You got to fight tall. You have to fight long. Mm. You're not touching something above your head. You're touching something in front of you. So how far you are away from it matters much more than how tall you stand over top of it. It's not a basketball game. It's a boxing match. So you're hitting somebody in front of you. So how tall you stand doesn't matter. You become a bigger target. You give the person a bigger shooting target if they're shooting at you. What you want to do is to be long. Mario has to understand the difference in height and length. I would rather be 5'10" with a freaking 76 inch reach than you'd be six <laughs> one with the 72, 71 inch reach. You gotcha. understand what I'm saying? Because yeah. you're longer. So Lars only about five, eight or five, nine, but he has a 75 inch reach, which is the reach of a person that's six, three. So people are wondering why he has the ability to outbox guys and he appears to be short, but they're not counting his length. Floyd Mayweather has been deceiving people for years about his length. Floyd Mayweather has freakish long arms, so he's only 5'8", but his reach is 72 inches. So he has the same reach as some junior middleweights, and he he had that reach as a 130-pounder. So his arm length is a lot longer than what people ever realize, so that's why he was such an exceptional fighter from the outside. Not the only reason, because obviously he has the skills and the reflexes, but people looked at Floyd as being a short fighter, but his height didn't matter. It was his length. So in this case, Mario doesn't have freakishly long arms for his height, but he does have the length factor. He has to make sure he fights long and not tall. He doesn't want to be a big target for Tank. He doesn't Tank Tank will hit him with an overhand left and knock him out cold if Mario, you know, does not recognize the difference between fighting long and tall. And if he does Tank has a fight on his hands. This is not going to be an easy fight. And Mario can get a groove, not get clipped with nothing early, and make Tank respect him. This is going to be a tough fight. So the co-main event is a 154-pound battle between Erickson Lubin, 23-1 and with 16 KOs, and on a four-fight winning streak against Jason Rosario, who has 20 wins, two defeats, and one draw, and was most recently knocked out by Jermel Charlo, last september eric when we broke down our five favorite fights of the showtime summer schedule this was the one non-main event that you included so what excites you so much about this fight what are you hoping to see well uh i just mentioned that the the main event is 26 year old versus 26 year old this is 25 year old versus 26 year old so so that alone excites me two physically prime fighters clashing um boxing writer cliff roll tweeted the other day about how rare it is to see two legitimate top 10 contenders in a division meet in a non-title fight. This is, this is kind of a throwback mm-hmm. in that way. It feels like the kind of fight that was common in the 1950s uh, when there was one champion, you know, Sugar Ray Robinson was the middleweight champ and the number three and number seven guys in the division, both excellent fighters would meet in a Gillette Friday night fights main event or something. You don't need belts at stake to make a great fight. And yes, I will be ignoring the silver trinket they've attached to this <laughs> fight to make it a 12-rounder. Um, on top of that, it seems pretty close to a pick'em fight. Um, they're both gifted offensive fighters who have both shown vulnerability. They've both been knocked out. What's more fun than a fight where you know either guy is capable of knocking out the other? Uh, it looks like a fan-friendly clash of styles to me. Lubin is a southpaw, and he can go into boxer mode at times, so there's some risk of that, but more likely than not, I think we're getting good action here, and 
I think the sort of fight where somebody's getting off the deck to win is, is very much in play. This is exactly what you want a pay-per-view co-feature to look like. Yeah. The opening two bouts on the card feature a pair of fighters who have some previous experience with one or more of the fighters in the main and co-main. In another 154-pound bout, Julian J. Rock Williams returns to the ring for the first time since losing to Rosario in January 2020. He takes on 19-1 Brian Mendoza. And opening things up is a 140-pound contest featuring Batir Akhmadov, whose sole loss in nine outings came to Barrios by a razor-close decision. He faces veteran Arhenis Mendez. Kieran, what interests you out of those two fights? So I'm really intrigued to see J-Rock Williams and see where he stands. Um, you know, how he went from being so impressive against Jarrett Hurd to so flat against Jason Rosario, uh, I don't know. Although his then-trainer Breadman hinted to us afterward that there were things going on behind the scenes, that, you know, maybe he was in a situation, uh, Williams, where he was getting people whispering in his ear, that kind of kind of stuff um it's his first fight without Breadman. he's been out for a while there are plenty of strong names at 154 including in the co-main so the pressure's really on him a little bit to perform well and keep himself in contention and i'm really curious to see if he's able to do that and i'm also looking forward to seeing Ahmadov, who put out a really good showing against barrios he was dropped early but he came back into the fight and he was really battering barrios down the stretch um but Barrios was still ahead on the cards, and we might have had ourselves a bit of a controversial decision had Akhmadov not walked into one and been knocked down in the 12th. I seem to remember when we were analyzing it, you said, well, the good thing about that knockdown is it saved us from a controversial decision because it looked, you know, it, it all kind of went right. uh, as we would expect it to be uh, with that final KD. Um, both men are up against foes who could really test them. I mean, you know, Mendes is going to be a, a really tough test for Akhmadov. He, he's that wily veteran. I, I'm really interested, you know, to see if either of them are fully at the races, and particularly J-Rock. I, I really do want to see what he has and whether he can put himself back into that 154-pound contention. Um, and with that, it's time to make our picks. And Eric, it is your turn to pick first. So... Start us off with your pick for Akhmadov Mendez. Okay. Uh, even though he took the L against Barrios, Akhmadov really impressed with how effective and suffocating a pressure fighter he was uh, and, and how he showed that after losing the first four rounds and getting knocked down. To come back in that way, it, it shows he's made of stern stuff. I do wonder about his chin, though. He got clipped and dropped twice in that fight. Against a big puncher, I'd be pretty concerned with him. But Mendez is not a huge puncher. He hasn't scored a knockout since 2015. In his last fight against Richardson Hitchens, he started slow and kind of came on when it was too late, and he really couldn't get past Hitchens' jab early. So this strikes me as Akhmadov's fight to lose. I could see his pressure getting to Mendez, wearing him down, forcing a stoppage, but I think I'll say Mendez has just enough veteran guile to get to the finish line. It's Akhmadov by clear unanimous decision. You? Yeah, same. Um, you know, Mendes is tough and durable, but he can blow hot and cold, can't he? I, I think he does have the skills and the veteran moves to make life uncomfortable for Akhmadov, but I just don't see him springing the upset here, and I think it would be an upset. I think Akhmadov's skill and work rate will be too much for him. You know, maybe he has a frustrating couple of rounds to get going, but I think once he does get going, Akhmadov, he'll be fine. Mendes will spoil and frustrate him at times, but... Um, Akhmadov will will win round after round, I think. And I agree with you. He um, wins a unanimous decision. Um, and I'm going to warn you now, I'm 
think we might be in for a bit of a late night because I'm going to go for a decision in our next fight too. <laughs> okay. um, I, I do think J-Rock is, is, is probably a superior fighter to Mendoza. Um, he certainly fought a higher caliber of opposition. And I don't. And the disappointment of the Rosario fight shouldn't obscure the fact that he's a real talent and he's looked very good against some of that 154-pound opposition before coming unstuck there. That said, he, he is coming off a long layoff um, following a confident sapping loss. Um it's the first time with a new trainer. He's got to get used to that. He's probably got to build up his confidence a bit. And although Mendoza, I think, doesn't have that much of a pedigree, his win over Thomas Lamana suggests he's not a pushover. I think it might take J-Rock a little while to get in the groove. Once he does, I think it will be mostly one-way traffic. But I actually think this is probably going the distance. A, a year or two ago, I picked J-Rock to win inside the distance. I think this is one of those where J-Rock thinks, i got to get in there, get the rounds under my belt, and then I'll be back and we can push from there. J-Rock by unanimous decision. Okay. Um, well, I guess uh, we're we'll both be rooting for my pick in terms of a, a slightly shorter <laughs> night. Uh, we're not too far off on this, um, but I do see it ending inside the distance. This is the easiest fight on the card for me to at least pick a winner. Uh, to me, J Rock is the clear favorite, although it is his first fight in 17 months and he has been knocked out twice. So you know he's not a sure thing versus anyone, but he figures to be levels above Mendoza, who faced only one opponent with a winning record in his first 16 fights and that guy was 1 and 0 uh, and then he beat 12 7 and 1 27 and 1 lost by and by that way that was 20 wins 7 losses 1 draw not 27 wins 1 loss in case that was unclear um lost by 8 round split decision to 9 and 2 Larry Gomez and then as you mentioned the decision cornflake lamana that's the best fighter he's beaten i just don't see him being competitive here Williams is not a huge puncher, but I think he'll land often enough to do damage. I'm going Williams KO7. And next up, from a fight I found easy to pick to a really hard one, <laughs> Lubin versus Rosario. I think Lubin is the higher upside guy here, the one with a little more talent, but also the more vulnerable fighter. That that KO1 to Jamel Charlo is hard to get out of my head, even a couple years later especially when you combine it with uh, the gym reports we heard at the time that, that Lubin was chinny. I kind of feel like this is one of those fights where whoever I pick here is going to go the other way, and I'm going to end up feeling stupid. <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, of course the guy I didn't pick scored a big knockout. It makes perfect sense after seeing them in the ring together. Uh, I could pick Lubin just because he's been on the podcast and we like him, uh, but... I don't know. I, I'm throwing my hands in the air on this one. Uh, I guess I land on Lubin being a little faster and sharper. I think he'll box his way past some hairy moments, maybe play it kind of safe down the stretch instead of going for the knockout and escape with a narrow decision win. I'll say Lubin unanimous, but not by much. Yeah, we're very similar here, too. I mean, I'm I'm also was having a hard time with this pick. I sort of keep wanting Lubin to show to us that he's a, maybe that little bit better than he is to elevate himself from the pack somewhat, but he, he never quite manages to do it. You know, Rosario's that very strong, tough dude, absolutely has the resilience and toughness on the day to beat just about everyone. Uh, I agree with you that I think that Lubin is the, the better boxer, the higher upside guy here. Um, I think it might be a bit of a, one of those nights that's a bit frustrating at times for Rosario and never comfortable for Lubin. I, I think that Rosario is going to try to impose himself, but also think that Lubin's, you know, going to find that he's spending more of the fight fending Rosario off rather than really separating himself. I, I think that Lubin will look to be the classier of the two, but Rosario is just going to keep coming. If anyone goes down, I think it might be Lubin at some point. Um, I think it's going to start off 
perhaps potentially more exciting than it ends. I do kind of agree with you that Lubin is perhaps a little bit more likely to box down the stretch. It's going to be mightily, mightily close. Uh, I am picking a Lubin decision. I went back and forth on whether it's going to be unanimous or split. I think very close, but unanimous um, for Lubin. Okay. Um, and that brings us to the main event. If I thought the co-main was hard to pick, Lord have mercy. <laughs> um, look, full credit to both men for taking this fight. It's the kind of fight both could have easily passed on and nobody would have blamed either of them. Um, Barrios has, in theory, physical advantages here, as we've discussed. Um, but he's not just a tall guy, right? I mean, that's to diminish what Mario Barrios is. He's a very, very good, uh, skillful and strong contender. Um, he can win this fight, but I think to do so, he needs three punches to work really well. The left jab to keep Davis at distance, the straight right behind it, and an uppercut for those times when Davis looks like he's coming in close. Um, if he can get all these tools working, not only is he going to give Davis a tough night, he's going to have a, a good, solid chance of winning. Um, you know, Davis isn't going to get anywhere by trying to make himself taller than he is. If anything, he needs to fight lower, you know, slip in under Barrios' punches, mm. um, you know, use what he showed against Santa Cruz was very good defense at times um, to get in there and block punches, uh, use his hand speed to fire in body and head combinations. One of the things that really impressed me against Santa Cruz was Davis showed us, I think, that maybe he's a more intelligent fighter than he'd always than he's sometimes been given credit for as well. He can adapt really, really very well. And I think we're going to see that here. I, I think this is going to be a back and forth fight. I fully expect both men to be pretty marked up by the end of it. Um, I would not be surprised to see Barrios with an early advantage as Davis looks to sort out timing and distance. But I do see Davis getting those things figured out and possibly really battering Barrios once he gets going um, before maybe Barrios gets a second wind at the end. I'm picking, shockingly, a decision win. I am four for four on decisions <laughs> okay. um, here tonight. I sure hope I lose some points. Um, <laughs> again, my question is whether it's unanimous or split. Uh... I'm going to go with Split and Davis emerging the winner in a close fight. Hmm. Okay, so you see a real close fight here. The more I review that Barrios-Akhmadov fight, the more I focus on the way Barrios conceded ground from round five on and was fighting off the back foot and just totally failing to discourage Akhmadov until he landed one very discouraging punch in the 12th right. that basically won him the fight. Um He's the bigger man against Davis, but I could see Davis looking at that Akhmadov fight and deciding to take the fight to Barrios. He wants to get inside anyway, so maybe he gets inside and plays the role of pressure fighter. Mario Barrios is a talented fighter. He's in his physical prime, but Gervonta, I think he's a level up. Uh, Tank is going for his 16th straight knockout, and it won't come easy, and it won't come early, but I think he gets it. Um, you know, we've seen Canelo step up and stop some bigger guys who just aren't as skilled and talented as he is. And I think we'll see Tank do that here. Let's go. Javante Davis, KO10 in an exciting edge of your seat fight. I will not be unhappy if you prove <laughs> to be correct on all four fights. Well, you don't want me uh, to get the exact round correct. So if exactly. anything, you're, you're rooting for like Davis KO9. Exactly. And and J-Rock KO8. Well, okay. six even. That's yeah, yeah. The quicker, the better. Or one. <laughs> Come on, we want to enjoy some action. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll get it elsewhere. Okay, got it. Exactly. Uh, all right. There's one other big fight next weekend besides the Showtime pay-per-view, and it's on ESPN Plus, taking place at Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. Vasily Lomachenko makes his return after his upset decision loss eight months ago to Teofimo Lopez. 
he takes on Japan's Masayoshi Nakatani. Nakatani is 19-1 with 13 KOs, and in his two most recent fights, he lost a competitive bout over the distance against the aforementioned Teofimo Lopez, and then recovered from a pair of knockdowns to knock out former prospect Felix Verdejo in what seems certain to be the last bout of the Puerto Rican's career. Uh, Kieran, a lot of fighters come back from their first loss with an easy get-well fight. Are you surprised that Lomachenko is picking what seems to be a dangerous opponent for his return fight? Uh, a sub-question on that, just how dangerous is Nakatani? Uh, and is a win enough here, or does Loma need to beat Nakatani impressively, and, and specifically more impressively than Lopez did? Lomachenko sought out Orlando Salido yep. in his second pro fight. So, no, I'm not terribly surprised. Um, but, yeah, Nakatani is legit dangerous. Um, he's a tall, strong, tough, awkward guy to face. Um, you know, he's pretty much the only person, you know, outside of the the, the back half of the fight against Lomachenko to, to have Lopez struggling a little bit. Um, and he showed his immense toughness by getting off the deck to stop Verdejo. Um I have a hard time making a case for Nakatani emerging victorious here, especially if Lomachenko's at anything close to his best. But he absolutely can make Lomachenko look less than stellar, and that's a risk for Loma. Um, he really doesn't need that. He said he picked Nakatani specifically because Nakatani had given uh, Lopez a tough fight, and he wanted to beat him more impressively. And on one level, the win is the only thing that matters. He really could do with the kind of win that looks like the Lomachenko we know and admire. Um, he, he's very swiftly, you know, from being the pound-for-pound pound number one in the galaxy, he's sort of very swiftly almost become like a forgotten man here. He's not been talked about very much at all in terms of the next big fight for Lopez. But if he's able to use his speed and mov movement to dazzle Nakatani, he'll remind everyone of who he is, how good he is. Um, he'll be able to make the case that, yeah, look, I told you I was injured during that Lopez fight. If I get a rematch, I'll be so much better. Um, if he struggles with him or if he just looks uninspired, uh, I suspect a Lopez rematch is gone, uh, at least for now, and that Lopez will actually look to Josh Taylor at 140, something like that. Um, so it's a it's a little bit of a high risk fight for Lomachenko, not, I think, because I think Lakatani is going to beat him, but he could actually sort of make him look less than impressive. But conversely, it's a high reward if he does look like his best. Okay. All right. So those are all the fights coming up uh, this weekend. So uh, time now for the second edition of our newest segment, The Money Punch, in which we scour online sportsbooks for the best odds for upcoming bouts and let you know what we think are the best bets for the weekend ahead. The disclaimers, uh, first, Sports betting is legal and regulated in some states, but not all, and some countries, but not all. So make sure you know what's allowed where you live if you're choosing to actually place boxing bets. Second, we are not a tout service. We're not guaranteeing winners. We're just giving you our opinions. And third, we record this podcast on Sundays usually, and unfortunately, some odds for Saturday fights don't come out until Thursday or Friday, so we might be a bit limited in the options. So in some cases, we might target bets we like in theory without knowing yet what the actual odds are. All that notwithstanding, uh, Kieran, anything catch your eye? Actually, yes. Um, I was looking at the odds for Davis Barrios, and not many of them were terribly enticing. You know, the straight, the normal, sort of who's going to win kind of odds. But I did come across a pair of prop bets that I think are legitimately really intriguing. One book is offering plus 3,300 on Barrios winning in that block of fights 9 through 12. And while that's not the most probable outcome, it's an entirely plausible one. Um and I was about to jump on that when I saw that another book is offering plus 5,000 on Barrios winning in rounds 10 through 12. Uh, those both strike me as wildly wide odds. 
what do you think? And, and which one of the two would you prefer? Yeah, I, those are both pretty good value, I, I think. Um, you know, I'm not predicting Barrios to win. Neither are you. I'm not predicting him to win by knockout. Neither are you. But the idea right. of him by late knockout is within the bounds of reason. He's probably the physically strongest fighter and biggest puncher Tank has faced. Why can't he possibly wear Javante down and get him out of there late? I, I could see that. So to get 33 to 1 for a four-round band or 50 to 1 for a three-round band, yeah, I think you found some attractive odds there for a long-shot bet, um, which you expect to lose when you make the bet. But right. if you make that same bet 33 times or 50 times, it's going <laughs> to hit often enough to pay out in the long run. Which one is the better bet? Um I guess just mathematically, 50 to 1 for three rounds is a little better than 33 to 1 for four rounds. You know, you're paying two cents on the dollar for three rounds and three cents on the dollar for four rounds. It's close. Um, but, you know, why choose one or the other when you can choose both? Uh, ah. let's, let's say you're planning to bet $20 to win either 660 or 1000 Putting ten dollars on nine to twelve to win three thirty, and ten dollars on ten to twelve to win five hundred. If you get it in ten to twelve, you're winning eight thirty. And if it happens to come in round nine exactly, you're not kicking yourself. You still got a nice win. Hmm, there you go. Uh, moving on to my bet. Uh, first, I'll note that I can't find odds on the pay-per-view undercard fights yet. I'll be looking hmm. for those later in the week. If either Lubin or Rosario is a bigger underdog than I'm anticipating, I would consider betting that dog. Um, and the other thing I'll be looking for, I think a parlay of the two guys I feel pretty confident in, uh, J-Rock, uh, him winning his fight parlayed with Akhmadov winning his. If those two together can get you close to even money, that's something I'd be interested in. Um, in case anyone is unfamiliar with the idea of a parlay, it's multiple bets, you get increased odds, but all the bets have to win for the bet to win. So it can be risky. Um, overall, it's actually the least profitable form of betting. Um, the, the sports books in a typical month, they hold about six or 7% from betters, but on parlay betting, because people like to do these crazy 10 leg parlays, chasing a dream that hits once in a blue moon, uh, parlay betting, the hold on that is about 18% for the books. Um, it's fun, but it's uh, often what is known as a sucker bet. Uh, anyway, enough general betting talk and uh, speculative talk about fights where we haven't seen the odds. The bet I'm zeroing in on is the method of victory bet for the Lomachenko-Nakatani fight. Lomachenko is like minus 1600 to win the fight outright. That's just too steep for me. I don't see the point in risking $160 to win 10. Um, but Lomachenko by decision is minus 110, risk 110 to win 100. And Lomachenko by KO is plus 100, even money. So this is a great spot for any better who has a strong leaning about whether or not this fight is going the distance. I don't have a strong leaning, but I have just enough of a leaning toward decision that I think that's a good bet here. Let me get your take real quick. Would you sooner risk 110 to win 100 on a decision or 100 to win 100 on a KO? Or, or do you believe Nakatani is a live enough dog that neither of these appeals to you? Uh, neither of them particularly appeal to me, but not because I think Nakatani's a live enough dog. It's simply because, like yourself, I don't have an even slightly strong feeling <laughs> okay. as to the manner by which Lomachenko wins this. And the possible reward here is not really very high. Um, I guess if I had to make a choice, if it's like 100 bucks, you've got to spend it on Lomachenko. 
I would probably plop it down on the decision. I think that Nakatani is such a tough opponent that I think that's the more likely scenario. I, I don't think Nakatani is going to be one of those guys who, who pleads no mass because he just can't touch Lomachenko. So, yeah, if I had to, I would probably pick the, the money on the decision as well. Okay. All right. You will have noticed that our earlier recap of Saturday night's fights did not include a look back at the Triller card featuring Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosos. Because the Triller card featuring Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosos didn't take place. Early in fight week, lightweight champion Lopez reported feeling unwell, underwent a COVID test, and tested positive for the virus. The entire card has been postponed until August 14th. Obviously, we hope that Lopez recovers. But his promoter, Bob Arum, from whom Lopez was briefly estranged before signing an amended deal last week, was pretty unsparing in his opinion on the matter. Uh, there was no reason why before he went into training, he didn't get vaccinated. No reason. And if he hadn't gotten if he had gotten vaccinated, he wouldn't have lost his payday. So I feel sorry for him. But the fight will happen, he told our friend and colleague Keith Eidek of Boxing Scene. But again, uh, this is Aaron continuing. This is different from when we first went into the bubble last June and we had every other fight with the guy getting COVID because nobody really knew how to handle it. But now with the vaccination, anybody gets COVID. Shame on them. Shame on them because they hadn't taken the time or they hadn't for some crazy reason decided not to get vaccinated. That's nuts. I can't find anything to take issue with in what Aram said there, Neil. Nope, not at all. <laughs> um, I'm sympathetic to those who have felt some vaccine hesitancy. Uh, and uh, Teofimo Lopez said because of his asthma, he wanted to wait to get the vaccine. But early in the pandemic, he said because of his asthma, he was worried about what would happen if he got COVID. He should have talked to a medical expert or two, because I'm sure they would have told him the latter is much more dangerous. Um, I keep hearing the phrase personal choice. Whether to get the vaccine is a personal choice. Yes, it is, but it's a personal choice that affects other people. Um, It's not quite apples to apples here, but is driving drunk because your news sources told you driving drunk is fine? A personal choice? Um, You know, to have vaccine hesitancy especially if you have some underlying condition or you're trying to get pregnant and you're, you're not sure how the vaccine might impact that. If, if To feel that way is understandable. To make the decision after some six months of vaccine distribution of massive evidence that it is safe and it might knock you on your ass for 24 hours, but otherwise you'll be fine. To make the decision that you're better off leaving yourself vulnerable to COVID uh, and in turn not doing your part to protect those around you and help speed up the elimination of the virus. Nope. No sympathy there. Uh, He he made an unsound decision, whether because he believed lies about the vaccines or because he just thought it couldn't happen to him and he could be careful and not get COVID. Whatever the case, wrong decision. Aram is right to rip into him. Uh, And George Cambosos is right to be pissed off. Uh, He released a statement spewing some solid vitriol, uh, legit angry about going through a whole training camp, flying people in from halfway across the globe. And then this happens. Although I heard IDEX say that Cambosos reportedly hasn't gotten the vaccine either. So so that adds a whole weird layer. Um, But every undercard fighter for this card has a right to be pissed. So look, I hope Lopez recovers quickly. I hope he's fine, has no complications. I wish him the best. I do. But Aram is right. Shame on him. Uh, Our co-main event in the news segment also involves a top-ranked fighter, Tyson Fury, who came face-to-face with Deontay Wilder last week for a press conference to officially announce their third meeting on July 24th. The big news, perhaps apart from Fury's decision to go topless and put his two bizarre bulges of back fat on display for all the world to see for much of the presser, uh, was that after making an opening statement, 
Wilder put on a pair of headphones and said nothing. Uh, he answered no questions. He didn't even say anything as the two men had a face-off that lasted fully five minutes. Kieran, do you read anything into Wilder's behavior? What about Fury's physique? Anything at all to infer from that press conference? So uh, I'm a little hesitant to offer much by way of criticism or commentary of Wilder these days, but um, uh, he just sometimes comes across as a bit of a weird dude, and, and this didn't necessarily disabuse me of that. But honestly, given the trouble that he can sometimes cause for himself when he goes off script, you know, from wanting a dead body on his record to all right. those excuses for his loss to Fury... I can totally understand if he thought, you know what, every time I say something, they get on me. So I'm not going to give him anything to work with. I'm just going to train and fight. I get that if that's the decision that he makes. Um, whatever you did last time didn't work. So shake it up. Do something completely different. Do the opposite. Um, it might not be super helpful for media, of course, but um, that five-minute wordless stare down probably got a lot more viral interest than any number of interviews or quotes would have done. So mm -hmm. I so I don't doubt that the publicists were very happy with the way it all went. Um, as for Fury, he's obviously never going to be a body beautiful, is he? But, you know, him saying basically, ah, the real work starts now in terms of training when Wilder's clearly been working on his fitness and his craft for a while already – I'm not saying that I'm starting to smell the possibility of an upset, but I'm not not saying that <laughs> either at this point. Um, we have a packed news undercard this week. Uh, one item that came in just too late for us to include last week. Uh, former heavyweight title challenger Alexander Povetkin announced his retirement, unsurprisingly, to the way he looked in his most recent outing against Dillian White. With a record of 36, 3 and 1 with 25 KOs. Um, Eddie Hearn has announced the fight cards in this summer's Matchroom Fight Camp on the grounds of Matchroom's HQ in England, which of course looked spectacular last year and included uh, Povetkin's last win, that KO victory over White. Um, the three card series this summer kicks off on July 31st with a card headlined by Connor Benn versus Adrian Granados. And also featuring another son of a famous British boxer, Campbell Hatton, as well as fights featuring Shannon Courtney and Avni Yildirim. Um, other cards follow on August 7th and August 14th. Another UK fight that has been announced sees heavyweight Joe Joyce, fresh off his win over Daniel Dubois, taking on veteran Carlos Takam. The World Boxing Super Series will be returning with, for the first time, a women's tournament to be held in the 130-pound division date and fighters TBD. And finally, and perhaps most sadly, uh, Oscar Deloya's long-touted exhibition fight has a dance partner, former UFC light heavyweight champion Vitor Belfort, on September 11th, likely in Las Vegas. Uh, Eric, please provide in-depth and insightful analysis now. Um, well, I can't promise insightful. Uh, and uh, <laughs> this is the undercard, so I, I don't care to go in-depth. Um, I'm well. going quick hit and surface level. That's the analysis well. you'll get from me. Uh, Povetkin, congrats on a good career, albeit a career with PED asterisks. Uh, certainly it was time to retire. He was a shell of himself in that white rematch. Those matchroom fight camp cards aren't bad for what they are, sort of a British showbox effort. Joe Joyce uh, is one of the next level victims of the judge's Wilder Fury ruling. The domino effect is that yeah. he loses out on a fight against Alexander Usyk and gets this instead. It shouldn't be much of a test. Takam is now 40 years old and has a long track record of beating the B-level guys, but getting soundly beaten by the real top 10 heavyweights, which Joyce seems to be. Oscar. I'm glad he didn't end up signing to face a good young professional boxer, uh, as he said at one point he intended to, but 
I think he's going to learn when the receipts are tallied the difference between public interest in him in 2021 and public interest in Mike Tyson or the still undefeated Floyd Mayweather. Oscar in the ring in 2021 just doesn't move the intrigue needle or the nostalgia needle. Um, And a women's WBSS sounds intriguing. Uh, The participants haven't been named yet, as you said, but uh, that's a good division. 130, Delphine Pursuin, Michaela Mayer, Terry Harper. Not sure if any of them will be in this tournament, but tournaments are almost always a good thing. They create stories that flow from fight to fight, and they shine a spotlight on all involved. So, sure, give it a shot. See if a new star in women's boxing emerges. Yeah, it's amazing to think how phenomenally popular Oscar De La Hoya was, what, 23, 24 years ago. (laughs) And like like carrying the sport. And, well, I guess that's when you... You can only take so many self-inflicted PR hits over a couple of decades, I guess, before people really stop caring. It's even unfair, even up till 15 years ago, he was still yeah. very popular, up till the yeah. very end of his career. But once he retired, I don't think anyone really cared to see him yeah. come back. Oh, amazing. All right. Uh, the walkout bout on our news card, for purely informational purposes only, put your feet up, Eric, no need to comment on this. It's a triumvirate of news items emanating here from the Showtime home office. Uh, first, the site of July 17th's absolutely mouthwatering junior middleweight clash between Jermel Charlo and Brian Castaño has been announced. It will be the AT&T Center in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Uriel Kiskamboa has pulled out of his scheduled July 3rd, 130-pound meeting with Chris Colbert with a rib injury. As of this recording, his replacement is still TBD. And finally, and most interestingly, uh, Showtime and PBC have made a switch to the August 14th, 118-pound Showtime Championship Boxing main event. Instead of scheduled opponent Guillermo Rigondeau, uh, John Riel Casemiro will square off against Nonito Donaire in what, following Donaire's big win against Nordin Ubali, is now a title unification. Although, of course, in a way, remains the true champ at bantamweight. But Showtime and PBC clearly electing to ride the hot hand there. Rigando uh, apparently agreeing to possibly fight on the undercard, and then uh, should every should he win, face the Casemiro Donair winner. Uh, and we will, of course, have much more on all these fights in the coming weeks and months. All right, time to stick the landing here with our final segment, the top five list. Eric, last week I gave you a gimme, as in give me your top five fights to show why <laughs> Arturo Gatti deserves his place in the Hall of Fame. So uh, Gatti Ward one, two, and three, and two other fights, is it? Uh, <laughs> take it away. It is not It is not that exactly. Um, before I get into my list, a general comment about the assignment, um, and it's particularly interesting coming off of your assignment on Kodo, who was also an exciting, popular fighter with some debate about his Hall of Fame credentials. In the case of Kodo, He mostly lost to the A-plus level opponents, but had a tremendously deep resume of wins against the A-minus level and B-plus level opponents, and cracked some pound-for-pound lists. You and I agree that based on the Hall's current entry standards, his credentials are plenty good enough, even though he didn't make it on the first try. Gaddy, meanwhile, got absolutely blown out the two times he fought A-plus level opponents, and was hit and miss against the A-minus level and B-plus level guys, was never considered a pound-for-pounder, and just based on wins and losses, doesn't have a Hall of Fame resume, even though he was very good for a fairly long time. He's a truly unique case who is in the Hall of Fame because he was the most exciting fighter of his era and is in the conversation for most exciting fighter ever, along with Matthew Saad Muhammad, Rocky Graziano, and so forth. So that's a long way of saying the countdown of the five fights that illustrate that Gaddy is a Hall of Famer have to combine his most impressive victories 
with his most dramatic and exciting fights. And that makes this fun and challenging and tricky. So all that out of the way, on to the countdown. At number five, this was the toughest call of the list for me. I I was pretty sure about my top four in some order, but number five was tough. But still, I'm not going to make it a three-way tie. I'm a real man, (laughs) Mulvaney. Um, I came into this sort of having a goal of not including more than one Ward Gaddy fight and also with the goal of not including any Gaddy losses, but I am failing to meet those goals. With some hesitation, at number five, it's the first Gaddy Ward fight, a.k.a. the one fight where the name should be reversed. It's Ward Gaddy won May 18th, 2002. Part of me feels like a fight where Gaddy came in as the favorite and lost to a guy who is nowhere close to being a Hall of Famer should not be part of Arturo's Hall of Fame case, but it does make the strongest case from a Thrills perspective. This was the greatest fight he was in. It showcased almost everything that made him the best action fighter of the last few decades, and it wasn't a clear-cut loss. The decision was pretty much a coin flip that went Ward's way. So with some reluctance, at number five, I'm showing Hall of Fame voters Ward Gaddy won. Yeah, I think you've you've got no problem including this whatsoever. It is the fight that will always be shown on his highlight reel, I think. Uh, and the fact that he even made it to the end um, mm. to, to get to a decision when he had Jim Lampley going, you can stop it, Frank, you can <laughs> yeah. stop it. Um, no, absolutely. And, and like you said, Arturo Gatti is this particularly unique case in the Hall of Fame that it's based on the kind of fights he, he produced, win or lose, the excitement that he created. And so I think for that reason, I think it's perfectly legitimate to include this. This is his defining fight. So, yeah, absolutely. OK. Uh, and number four, proving that I'm pretty good about keeping personal biases out of this or else I might have had this higher on the list. It's the fight that helped me fall hopelessly in love with boxing. October 4th, 1997, on the first card I ever covered in person, Gaddy KO5 Gabrielis. This checks a lot of boxes. Definitive knockout win over a quality fighter, in this case, a respected former title holder. Thrilling fight. It was the Ring Magazine's fight of the year for 1997. A taste of the classic Gaddy comeback. He was badly hurt in the fourth round, looked headed for defeat then pulled out the big left hook knockout that was his specialty. There's another fight coming up on my list that checks most of the same boxes and checks some of (laughs) them in much bolder ink, Uh, but this really is a fairly quintessential, unimpeachable Gaddy victory representing him at the peak of his first good run at 130 pounds. Yeah, absolutely. This was like his last fight before he started to run into the quality boxes who would sort of undo him a little bit. I I feel like this was in a sense, peak that early phase of Gaddy, wasn't it? And yep. like you said, you had the perfect word there. It was quintessential. It wasn't a Gatti fight unless he was cut on the verge of the feet <laughs> and seemingly in trouble before coming back to score the spectacular win. So yeah, completely agree with this one. Okay, at number three, it's the second fight versus Mickey Ward that makes my list. Uh, and I promise it's the last time a Mickey <laughs> Ward fight will make the list. It was the only one of their three fights that wasn't the fight of the year. Their November 23rd, 2002 second fight in Atlantic City. And while it did have some thrilling moments, I put it on the list because it's one of the best examples of Gaddy's boxing skill, where he stayed disciplined, used some actual upper body movement at times, (laughs) mostly resisted the urge to slug it out, and avenged a painful loss from six months prior. Look, against 
truly great boxers like Floyd Mayweather, Gaddy's skills were useless. But against a different grade of opponent, he could be quite skillful when he chose yeah. to be, which he often did not. Um, <laughs> he really put it all together in this fight against Ward. This was the peak of his partnership with Buddy McGirt, I think. He pretty much dominated the fight, knocked Mickey down in the third round, which is a feat in and of itself, uh, and stayed on task. And if this was the only fight of Gaddy's that you ever saw, you might indeed yeah. believe his skills were worthy of the Hall of Fame, yeah. or, or at least somewhere in that vicinity. Yeah, no, I mean, I had a feeling you were going to in- include this. Uh, I think that was partly just from some conversations that we'd had. Mm. And it is, I suspect it's probably the only one in this list that looks a little bit like this fight. But yeah, every so often, especially when he was with Buddy, he could settle down and box pretty well. And you think, huh, you know what? There's actually two, more to Arturo Gatti than we thought. So yeah. Uh, yeah, this was the one the one fight in that trilogy where he clearly kind of separated himself. So yeah, I'm not surprised that you included this one. Okay. At number two, it's probably the most complete and impressive win of the second phase of Gatti's prime. The fight that earned him a pay-per-view showdown with Floyd Mayweather and even convinced a few people that Gatti had a chance in that fight. January 29th, 2005, a dominant fifth-round knockout of Jesse James Leha. Like Ruelas, Leha, who actually fought Ruelas, uh, was a respected former title holder, and he was on a good late-career run. He'd just come off an excellent win over Penchito Bajado. He'd won four straight. This seemed like a tough fight for Gaddy on paper, and Gaddy went right through Leha, outboxed him, outpunched him, mm-hmm. dropped him twice in the fifth round, and sent him into retirement. Gaddy went one and three the rest of his career after this. This was his last great win, the end of his prime, really. Yeah, uh, and again, a slight anomaly in that um, he wasn't on the verge of, of bloody defeat before right. he before he scored his win. But yeah, this was definitely very impressive. He, he packaged it all together really well here. Uh, absolutely at his peak. Yeah, no no disagreement with this at all. And Leha was a fine fighter, sure, at the, at the end of his career, but uh, this was a fine win. Okay, and you probably know what's at number one. (laughs) It's the fight in which the Gaddy legend was born. Uh, Not the best opponent he ever defeated. Not really the best performance. Uh, If anything, this fight was 10 times harder than it was supposed to be. But it was just the gaddiest damned win you'll ever see. (laughs) March 23rd, 1996, KO6 over Wilson-Rodriguez. Gaddy making his first title defense at 130 pounds. It was supposed to be something of a gimme against the unknown Dominican Rodriguez. It's hard to make a defense without any defense. Uh, And Gaddy's inability to avoid punches bit him hard early in this fight. He got rocked, dropped, nearly stopped. His eyes swelled shut. He had to bluff the doctor into letting it go on. And then he rallied, turned it around with body shots, dropped Rodriguez, and somehow, amazingly, battled back from the brink to knock him out with a left hook. This fight exemplifies why Arturo Gatti is in the Hall of Fame and also tells you exactly why a lot of people don't think he should be in the Hall of Fame because he went life and death with Wilson Rodriguez. This fight has it all. Yeah, I I remember watching this um, on HBO when it aired, and I'm reasonably certain I was unaware of Arturo Gatti before that fight. And I feel, and I think probably many casual fans at least, were not especially aware of him before that fight. It's difficult to think of any fight that more announced a fighter to a broader public and announced him in what would become such a blueprint manner mm-hmm. um, as this fight. Like, not only was it to be at the same time a spectacular performance and in some respects, and also 
the sort of apotheosis of, of what he would end up standing for, you think, oh, my God, that was incredible. We'll never see that again. Oh, wait, Arturo Gatti's fighting again. We saw it again. Oh, look, we saw <laughs> it again. It's kind of amazing that not only did he battle back from, from the brink, most fighters have one, maybe two kind of real, really pushed up against it, cut and bloody, got to dig deep, got to pull out the win in their careers. You would have thought watching this, wow, this was Gaddy's already. Who knew he'd have another three or four or five of these kind of fights? Yep. Uh, and But this still was, I think, the absolute best illustration of what made Arturo Gatti Arturo Gatti. All right. Um, so just to run down some other fights I considered, including, of course, the third fight with Mickey Ward got some consideration, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite as thrilling as the first or as dominant as the second. Um, I was reluctant to include losses, but... The first fight against Ivan Robinson was the 1998 mm-hmm. fight of the year, and Gaddy almost rallied for a final round knockout, so I had to at least consider that. Either of the Tracy Harris-Patterson fights yep. could have made the list. They were both just flawed enough as victories to miss the cut for me. Uh, the first fight, Gaddy really faded late after building a big lead, and the second fight, Gaddy got helped by two incorrect knockdown calls, uh, one against him that was called a low blow, and one against Patterson that was clearly a slip but was ruled a knockdown. So the fight was a little closer than those scores suggest. And then the one that probably comes in at number six for me, KO2 over Leonard yep. Doreen. Just a great one-punch body shot knockout over a very good fighter. It just missed the top five for me. Yeah, I wondered about Doreen and where that would land. You know what? I've got a confession to make. I didn't appreciate until looking this up that Dorina retired after that fight. Yep. I actually had absolutely no idea. And I don't know if he just retired because he just decided to do something else or, or what the deal was, but I, I don't know how that escaped me, but there you go. Yeah. I can't um, remember whether what, what the reason for his retirement was exactly, but I did. Yeah. It, it was interesting that the, toward the end of his career in that second prime Gaddy uh, getting knocked out by Gaddy actually ended a couple of careers. Yeah. Yeah. And the Robinson ones are interesting because you know, we talk so often about how you know, we put too much stock in fighters losing and we deserve to bring them back, you know, even if they lose. And Gaddy was the real exemplar of that. Manfredi, Robinson, Robinson, 0 and 3 and 3 fights. And HBO kept bringing him back anyway, mm-hmm. because he was, even in a losing effort, he was always so spectacular. So, um, again, that says a lot, I think, for Arturo Gaddy and the kind of fighter that he was. There you go. That was a nice, fun gimme for you, wasn't it? Uh, yes, I very much appreciate that. I needed that. Uh, we'll get back to uh, semi-difficult lists uh, starting next time. No, uh, time after next with my list. <laughs> <for you. laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to look back on Saturday's pay-per-view and to look ahead to the July 3rd Showtime Championship Boxing event featuring Chris Colbert against someone. Uh, Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.